Welcome to the Petri Dish Podcast with Rachel, Lindsay, and Sabria. Hello, ladies. Have you guys gotten your flu shots yet? We did. I did. It was a lot of fun. <laughs> Getting stuck with needles. <laughs> so it's flu season, and getting our flu shots all got us thinking about vaccines. Shots, so. shots, 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 everybody. <laughs> <laughs> Um, a lot of things about how they're made, how your body reacts to them. We have a really cool historical story about smallpox. Uh, but just to begin, let's talk about how vaccines are made. I think that's a really good starting point because I always wonder how they're made, but more so why they always ask you if you're allergic to eggs before you get vaccines. Which is a great question, and that relates to the flu vaccine. So when they make um, when they make the, this year's flu vaccines, what they're doing is that they have a bunch of fertilized eggs. They inject um, a small needle into the eggs that contain the virus. They then incubate um, the cells and the eggs. And one reason why they like to use eggs is because they can incubate them at the perfect temperature for a virus to ma- be made. Oh, that's interesting. And then when... So like they're cooking the virus in the egg? I don't think they're necessarily... Well, not cooking, but like incubating. <laughs> not almost, right? Yeah, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> and so when... They sufficiently produce, when the eggs produce enough virus, they then cut open the eggs, they purify the part of the virus, and then they can, they add other ingredients to make a complete vaccine. So they add something that's called an adjuvant, so that will just enhance your normal immune system. It kind of um, just primes your immune system. It gets it ready to make more specific responses. And then also they want to include a preservative because you have to not only transport the vaccine from the manufacturer to get it to the people. So mm-hmm. that's another common additive in vaccines. So that's how you get the vaccine into the bottle, and it's distributed to your pharmacy or your flu clinic, and then it gets shot into your arm. Do you know if they have to make it in eggs? No, actually they don't. I think traditionally that's how the flu shots are made annually, but uh, there is a big push, and they want to do some a lot of innovations into making them in um, cell culture. There's a couple reasons for that. Mainly, they think it's um, it will make it so you can produce them quicker. So with eggs, you have to have a fertilized egg, then you have to go through the entire process that I just described, whereas if you had cell culture cells ready and primed, you can just infect them and then start harvesting. So there's really a push to that so you can get a quicker turnaround in producing uh, different vaccines. And so now that we know how vaccines get made um, and how they get into the bottles uh, when you sit down in your chair to get the flu vaccine, uh, you know, what happens after it's injected. You get, after yeah. it's injected? And we will actually talk about the different types of vaccines um, that are out there, but just to give you a quick summary of what happens uh, as far as your immune system is concerned, mm-hmm. um, once you get injected with a vaccine, and what we want to point out is a vaccine is a pathogen imposter. Um, and so it has parts of a pathogen that your immune system can respond to. And your immune system has cells that um, travel around your body looking for foreign antigens. And antigens, and right, and antigens <laughs> are just, you know, pieces from a pathogen. Um, and your macrophages will recognize that mm-hmm. and uh, display them for other circulating cells. Right, so there's different kinds of cells in your body that are designed to kind of, say, show to your immune system that something is foreign and attacking you and not just sort of yourself. Um, So they get get activated and um, these cells respond even though you're not having a real infection. 
Right, and so one of the ways that some of the cells responds, um, which are called B cells and also T cells, but B cells um, make these things called antibodies, um, which when you actually do get sick Mm -hmm. um, with whatever you get vaccinated for, your body can uh, mount a quicker response because in theory it has already seen this before. Right, so the whole point of this is to make it so your immune system is ready, you know, the time that you get a real invader in your system. So you have all these memory B cells and T cells that are just, um, they are maintained in your body over time and for varying amounts of time. And that's kind of important in terms of uh, how the different vaccines work. Sometimes, you know, you have to go in for a booster Mm -hmm. because those cells don't always last your entire lifetime. Um, And, but they're, they're there and they're ready once, once your immune system picks it up you know, for real, like, hey, guys, this is the real deal. we got to get going. Yeah, right. <laughs> it's a much faster response. They divide really fast, and they act much more strongly. And I feel like there's a common misconception um, where people are kind of hesitant to get vaccines because, you know, I've heard, oh, I don't want to get vaccines because last time I got a vaccine, I got sick from the vaccine, or the vaccine could, you know, in- give me whatever I'm being vaccinated against. Mm-hmm. Um, and, I mean, I personally have never gotten sick from my flu vaccine, but, you know, you also have to realize that it takes your body a while to build up immunity against this. Mm-hmm. So it is possible that you could get a, the flu vaccination, but then, you know, a couple of days later still get the flu. And it's, it's really because your body has not had the proper amount of time I mean, to mount this response. I think in relation to the flu vaccine specifically, it takes about, I think they average two weeks or so for your body to fully respond and be primed to defend your body against an, another flu infection. But another thing to point out is that I know we're getting a little bit in detail about the flu, is that each year it changes, and there are multiple different strains of flu out there. So the flu vaccine that you get annually is designed to be the best guess of what this year's most infectious flu would be. And in some cases, it might not actually work out to be that same flu. Right. So that's another reason why potentially sometimes people are like, oh, I've gotten sick after getting the flu shots, because you weren't... It could have been a different strain of flu. And so how, do you know how they actually guess what strain of flu is going to be the, actual, the one that infects most people? I mean, interestingly, I was, I, I was really curious about this, so I kind of looked it up and I wanted to find a little bit more about it. It's not explicitly explained, but if you go, I think, to the CDC website, they talk about how twice a year the, I don't know if it's the WHO, but some part of WHO, I think, meets and once a year, it's for the Northern Hemisphere. Once a year, it's for the Southern Hemisphere. And they look at studies of the past year, um, which viruses, which flu viruses were infecting people and a bunch of other factors. And they sit down and they make their best guess. And they, they make a combination of different components. And then, that, then they'll send that out to the companies that manufacture it. And the other interesting thing that I found was it takes about six to eight months lead time to manufacture it. So they're guessing not really. It's sci- they're using science to figure it out, but they are taking a scientific, educated guess to predict what the upcoming flu season's strains will be. Mm-hmm. They do it up in, for instance, for us, we get the flu the flu vaccine in October, right. November. They put together their best guess in February. So by February of this year, they'll have already kind of predicted what the flu will be for 2014. Mm-hmm. At least that's what I that's what I came across. Science. <laughs> I mean, before we get too far into 
the flu specifically, I think there's plenty of other diseases to talk about and other vaccines that are interesting to discuss. And I think one of the great stories um, and also one of the successes is the smallpox story. And so Rachel came across this really great historical story about smallpox and how initially vaccination was kind of put together. Yeah, so um, smallpox you may have heard of uh, as being the first and only to date uh, pathogen that's been completely eradicated um, in the world. And this is because it was one of the um, earliest vaccines that was used in a sort of modern medicine kind of way. So smallpox has been around for an extremely long time, longer than we actually really know. But going going back into recorded history, you know, back into um, ancient China and uh, the Middle East. And back in the day, there was a lot of sort of more traditional medicine uh, where they would take little pieces of the pox, you know, what you kind of see. It's, it's similar to chicken pox in the sense you have a little bubble on your skin. Um, so they would, they would take little pieces of that from people who were infected. Oops. Yeah, totally. <laughs> disgusting. It's like, hey, let's share some pox. <laughs> the, the actual term is pustule. That's a <laughs> fun word for you. Um, so they would actually take little pieces of that and kind of scrape it into people's skin. So not exactly like taking a needle and injecting like we do today, but very similar idea. Um, and the, what ended up happening, which I think was surprising, you know, they didn't know too much about how these things worked back then. Um, more people survived from that than people who got smallpox normally, you know, from other, you know, just random exposure. And, um, so this actually worked pretty well. And that, that practice actually caught on in more modern medicine in, in both, uh, Europe and the U S you know, more the Western world. Um, before we even had what we would know of as a vaccine today. Vaccines, the, the whole concept behind vaccines is that you would give something, as, as Sabria was saying earlier, a, that's an imposter of a pathogen, not something that's going to actually make you sick. And from this practice we were just talking about, uh, people still get sick. It just wasn't as bad as normal. Smallpox is extremely deadly, somewhere between 20 and 60% of people died, and even more in children. So it was, it was pretty bad, and people were willing to do at least this, you know, practice just to make it slightly better. But it would be even more advantageous if you could come up with something that looked like real smallpox, but actually wasn't and didn't make you sick. And that's what ended up happening. So sometime in the 18th century, there were a lot of doctors uh, involved in these um, sort of early vaccinations that were trying to make it better. And they noticed that dairy maids who were exposed to cows didn't get smallpox, which is kind of strange because it was really widespread. So it became this sort of common knowledge of, of the day that these women that have been exposed to cowpox, which is very similar, it kind of like looked the same, it had the little pustules, again, with that fun word. Um, but wasn't it, wasn't it not as severe? It couldn't... Did people get infected with cowpox? Yeah, they actually did. And that's why they realized that this was going on. Um, you know, people were actually conscious of the fact that they had had cowpox. If it were something that they were exposed to, but they didn't have any symptoms, I don't know if they would have mm -hmm. noticed. So it's kind of a, a happy coincidence. Uh, so 
you know, when doctors were starting to notice that this was happening naturally, they started doing it intentionally. So instead of just, you know, sending everyone to the farm, they took samples <laughs> and Go milk some cows. And uh, and they actually intentionally gave it to people to protect them from smallpox, the real smallpox. So it was the first real vaccine in the sense of of the word today. And actually, fun fact, the word vaccine comes from vaccinia, which is the bovine analog of smallpox. And vaca is the Latin word for cow. So always good to know your roots, ladies. (laughs) Uh, So let's get back to today's, what we know about today's vaccines, and let's do a little bit of introduction in the types of vaccine. There's actually quite a few different types. Um, They can be categorized into live attenuated so examples of those would mean measles, mumps, rubella, polio, things of that sort. And so what it means by live or attenuated is that you are given a form of the virus that has been weakened. So, right, the analogy that I like to use is um, if a vaccine was a lion <laughs> and the lion had its teeth taken out and its claws, right? So it's still a lion, but much weaker. And I, and I think that what you can point to is the advantage of this is that it produces the strongest immune response since it's so close. So in the example, the analogy of the lion, <laughs> it's just missing its more scary part. It looks a lot like a lion anyway. <laughs> <laughs> um, and also, most commonly, the live attenuated vaccines are only given in one or two doses and they provide most commonly lifelong immunity. Um, but there are also negatives associated with a live or attenuated uh, vaccine. Right, so they need to be refrigerated, Yep. Um, which if you can imagine in a third world country or even in a developing country, um, uh, refrigeration is, I know, something we probably take for granted, mm-hmm. but um, it's not so widely available. It's also, uh, sometimes it's a bit risky in people that are immunocompromised to give them a attenuated strain. It might not, it doesn't make a normal person sick, but if your immune system isn't as strong as it normally would be, say you're pregnant or you have HIV, or um, any other condition that can cause lack of immune response that can cause issues. Mm-hmm. Well, and also, if we are um, taking a, if, we're, if it's an attenuated version, that means that whatever you're giving could also mutate. Yep, that's another major disadvantage to it, that potentially, if it's still alive, it has the potential to become back to its infective form, um, so then you would be likely to have the disease. Instead of having the protective feature of the vaccine, you'd get the disease. Uh, The next type is inactivated or killed, and common uh, examples of this would be the flu vaccine, um, the cholera vaccine, um, and also, I guess, the rabies vaccine. I mean, these are considered safer because the the virus or the bacteria or whatever it's killed mm-hmm. um and this one is complement so this one does not require refrigeration so it's easier it's more easily transported and stored mm-hmm. but the con of for that for these is that you do need booster shots um because since the immune uh, response isn't as strong mm-hmm. um you need to um you don't uh, confer enough immunity in the first dose and so it wears off and so you have to go back so like the the tetanus one is also an inactivated one right Yes, actually, tetanus is an example of an inactivated uh, toxoid vaccine. And another type of vaccine that we haven't mentioned that has been in the news recently is the HPV vaccine, which is a subunit vaccine, which means that it only has pieces of the 
pathogen. Um, in this case, it's the capsid protein. Mm-hmm. Um, and so HPV is the human papillomavirus. Um, there's 150 type of them, types of viruses that fall under this family. Um, and one of the things that we want to stress about this is that the vaccine targets the virus, which then... Right, so the vaccine targets the virus, and the virus is what causes cancer. So the vaccine isn't targeting cancer. Right, there's an intermediary step that... Right, and so one one of the reasons it was so controversial in the news was because of how young girls were, um, the suggestion of girls who were... 11 or 12 mm-hmm. um, getting this this vaccine and so parents were a little squeamish in that you know they didn't want to think about their kids I mean because it has the connotation of being associated with um, sexually active people right well I mean honestly the statistics surrounding HPV are kind of staggering um, 80 million people currently have HPV there are 14 million new cases each year um, and it's actually incredibly common that nearly all sexually active people will get at least one kind of HPV and you know like I said there's 150 types of viruses out there. But in relation to the vaccine? Right. In relation to the vaccine, there's only two, um, it's type 16 and type 18 that cause um, cervical cancer. And these two types cause 75% of of all cervical cancer. So there are two types of vaccines against um, HPV. Um, The one that most people know is Gardasil. Mm -hmm. And actually that protects against four types of HPV. Um, as I said, six, 16 and 18, um, which cause the cervical cancer, and 6 and 11, um, which cause about 90% of these um, genital warts. Um, the other one is Cervarex, um, which only protects against types 16 and 18, um, which is only for the cervical cancer. Hmm. We've talked in the detail about a couple of different examples, but in general, what makes a good vaccine? Right, so there's a couple of things that you would think would make a good vaccine. One is that they're safe, essentially that they don't actually cause a person to be sick or to become ill, um, that it protects against specific illnesses or diseases, um, but that it also gives sustained protection over time. Mm-hmm. And that it, as we talked about earlier, when you get vaccinated, you, you want it to produce a neutralizing antibody so that when you do counter this um, disease, your body can mount an immune response. Um, And also, as some of the things that we mentioned versus the pros and cons of attenuated or um, inactivated vaccines, it has to be practical. So like, is it incredibly expensive? How, you know, what is its shelf life? Is it stable? Does Mm -hmm. it need to be refrigerated? Um, So these are things, you know, when vaccines are being produced um, that people keep in mind. Which is not easy. And, you know, as most people are aware, there are a whole bunch of things out there that we don't have vaccines for that we would obviously like to, you know. Mm-hmm. Vaccines are a great treatment because, you know, ideally if they work well, you know, they're safe and you don't have to deal with the disease at all. So, I th- yeah, I think I came across actually a really interesting set that was talking about cost in terms of if you can give someone a vaccine against a disease and prevent them from getting it, mm-hmm. you are saving money because the cost of them getting it and then you having to treat them Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. far outweighs the cost of producing and getting a vaccine. Absolutely. And then you're not taking risks with people that can't fight it off. You know, certain things you get vaccinated for, you might be okay, but you might not be. You know, people used to die of a lot of things that we don't have to worry about as much today, at least in the modern world. Well, and I feel like maybe, I don't know if this is too um, general of a statement, but for example, like when we were talking about smallpox, I mean, smallpox has been completely eradicated, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I I would hope that 
that's kind of the way that some people think about vaccines is, I mean, I don't know if we can completely eradicate the flu, for example, but... There was actually some interesting information that I came across that pointed out why, in fact, um, Rachel had just asked, why are some diseases actually able to be vaccines created against them and why others might not? Um, They used smallpox as an example because they kind of attributed it to three main reasons. First, that when you get smallpox, it's obvious you have smallpox. You get the bumps. And the the time from when you are infected to the time that you show bumps is actually a very short period. Mm -hmm. Um, Also, only humans get smallpox. So there's no other um, animal reservoir is what they call. Um, And then also, once you have smallpox, you have a lifelong immunity against it. Mm-hmm. So, for instance, I think um, one of the examples was in polio. So, a person who's infected with polio might be infected, but they don't know they're infected. So, they are out tra- transmitting the virus to other people. So, right. there's no direct, um, no obvious symptoms that point to that person having polio versus that they're still infecting other people. So, there's a little bit of a time lapse. Right. Which actually just makes it even more amazing that. Polio is actually pretty close to being eradicated. I think it's only left in about three countries right now. Mm-hmm. I want to say Pakistan, Afghanistan, and I think Nigeria. Mm-hmm. And it's it's a very small number of cases at this point, so it's close. Fingers crossed. Another, I guess, example would be um, malaria. Yeah, so malaria is a tough one because it has such a huge impact on human health. It's such a common disease. And um, it has a really terrible impact on certain parts of the world where it's endemic. I mean, a lot of uh, adults are, are able to fight it off. A lot of the casualties of malaria, unfortunately, are children. So unlike in the case of smallpox, where if you did survive it, you had mm. lifelong immunity against it most um, typically. In the case of malaria, people are infected over and over and over you never really see, or at least there haven't been documented cases of sterilizing immunity. So if your body naturally isn't able to mount an effective immune response to block you from getting malaria again, it's it's even more challenging to design something like a vaccine to do that. So there have actually been a whole bunch of vaccines that have made it to the point of clinical trials in malaria that seem like they might work, they might work in some small area, but when they expand it, the results have been unfortunately really disappointing. So that's a major challenge because, you know, in in areas where malaria is endemic, it's a lot more difficult to deliver drugs than it is than it would be to vaccinate people. So that's still the hope. Also, HIV is a really big one that people would love to see a vaccine for. Uh, it's obviously really a uh, terrible disease and, you know, a lot of viruses we've been successful in vaccinating against, but in the case of HIV, it attacks your immune system. So we were mentioning some of these cells earlier that are involved in the immune response that are necessary for a vaccine to work. And some of these are just in really poor function in HIV because the HIV virus actually gets into those cells and kills them. So it's it's almost like the virus itself is, is making it more hard to vaccinate against the virus. So... We've talked a lot about all the good things that potentially vaccines could help against. Right, but I mean, there's a lot of controversy still surrounding vaccines, and more importantly, why parents don't want to vaccinate their children. Um, There's been some talk of autism uh, being linked to giving, I mean, uh, your child getting autism um, from vaccines. 
So there's actually no scientific basis for that claim. And uh, once upon a time, there was a researcher who published a paper making a link between autism and I believe it was the MMR vaccine. Mm -hmm. And um, he had actually made up patients in that study. It was completely discredited, and it's never been repeated. So this, this one man who published this one false study for his own... God knows what reasons, um, has perpetuated this myth that there's a link between vaccines and autism. There are also other groups of parents who don't vaccinate their kids, um, and it's not even because they think that they might get the, give them autism. It's that based on this concept of herd immunity. And so herd immunity is just depending on the fact when a large percentage of the population is already vaccinated, the spread of that particular disease becomes more limited. Um, but I think it's also important to think about that depending on the disease and the way that this disease is spread, there are something about there are some diseases that spread very easily that require 80 to 95 percent of the population to actually be immunized against it. So depending on herd immunity in that case is not really a good idea. Right. I mean, if you can imagine that if, you know, you are in a community where everyone believes in herd immunity, then that means no one's getting vaccinated. Right. And also we're talking about statistics here. So you know, even though, say, almost everybody is vaccinated, if, you, if your kid is not vaccinated and they happen to come across somebody who has the disease, I mean, there have been some cases of measles in this country in the last, I don't know, five years or something, little mini outbreaks that should never happen because we have these vaccines, they work really well, but people just aren't getting them because they don't remember how bad these diseases were before mm -hmm. we had the vaccines. So people just don't take it as seriously maybe as they they should. And, and the other thing to keep in mind is, you know, there's people that can't get the vaccines. If they're, you know, elderly and immunocompromised, the vaccines don't work as well. Also, babies, really, really young babies that may not have the full immune response yet, really depend on this herd immunity to protect them. So if, you know, if your older children are not vaccinated and you have a baby in the house, that's an extremely risky situation. Well, after all that talk about vaccines, I'm really glad I went ahead and got my flu shot. <laughs> I mean, with all of this stuff, though, and with all vaccines, you really should talk to your doctor mm -hmm. um, about what's best for you, about what's going to work for you. Yep. And we'll also put links to the CDC and the WHO up on our Facebook page, so feel free to look at those links as well as consulting your doctor. Um, you can also like us on Facebook as well as email any questions or comments to the Petri Dish Podcast at gmail.com.